Hello, and welcome to another Sarasota Institute podcast. The Sarasota Institute is a 21st century think tank that is focused on 10 major topics we feel important for the future of humanity. Please go to sarasotainstitute.global to learn more. The Sarasota Institute is a nonprofit corporation. Hi, I'm Jason Voss. Welcome to the Sarasota Institute podcast. I'm one of the three co-founders. Joining us today is Dr. Donna Peterson. She is Dean of and Professor of uh, Public Health at the University of South Florida. And more germane to us today in our topic, uh, we're going to be talking to her about ding, 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 pandemics and public health. Either I don't want to sound too effusive about that. I'm, I'm not sure we have a lot of good news here. But in any case, Donna, welcome. Thank you, Jason. Yeah, sure, of course. So let's let's dive in. Um, define public health for me, first of all, because my, my question that's going to follow up is, why is public health typically unprepared for these things called pandemics? But that assumes we know what public health is. Is that a set of institutions? Is it our society? Is it the global, I don't know, populace? What, what is public health to you? Yeah, that's a great question. So well, the way I like to define public health is it's what we do collectively as societies to create conditions in which we all can be healthy. And I usually start by describing what health is. I often ask people in an audience, would you rather be healthy or not, which always gets a laugh. Um, but then when I say, OK, so we all want to be healthy, but that's where the challenge comes in, because if you heard what I said, what we do collectively as societies to create conditions in which we can all be healthy, we don't agree on what those conditions are. Because conditions mean you're, you're either act, act, asking someone to do something, uh, asking them to not do something, you're perhaps imposing something on them, and people don't like that. The other part of your question, which I think is really um, a, a, a very insightful one. So Public health is in one way then this societal goal. It also is an organized system of agencies in the public sphere. You have the federal government has many uh, different agencies related to public health. Every state has a state health department. There are community uh, health departments. Um, but it's also a profession. So as dean of a school of public health, we are preparing professionals in public health who work with communities to try to sort out what are those conditions that we're willing to uh, accept in order to promote our own health. I like that answer a lot. It, your uh, comments about we don't agree what public health is reminds me of uh, a complaint that that I authored in one of my books, which is people say, uh, as evidence of the fact that people don't think right, or they think incorrectly, or they're biased, is that everybody thinks they're an above average driver. And my retort to that is, but we all have different criteria as to what it means to be a good driver. So by our own criteria, most of us consider ourselves good, good drivers. That's not the interesting point. The interesting point is what's public health? What's good driving? So thank you for your definition. So why is public health, in your opinion, and maybe you disagree, actually, I, I shouldn't lead the witness here. Why is public health unprepared or was it unprepared for COVID? <laughs> so... One of our great challenges, uh, as I just said, first is that public health is what we do collectively and we don't agree. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is public health at its best prevents disease, prevents injury, prevents premature mortality. Uh, prevention, if you're successful, means things don't happen. When things don't happen, people forget that things could happen. <laughs> and 
So it's difficult to sustain an investment in prevention. It's difficult for people to continue to resource a system when they don't see anything happening. It's, it's much easier. And to be fair, there are lots of competing priorities for the resources that we have. And so people tend to fund those things that are more immediate. So there's a lot of money being thrown at public health now because, because of COVID, in the wake of COVID. This happened after 9-11. It happened uh, in the early HIV AIDS era. It's been happening around cancer. But those investments tend to fade over time. Because again, if you're successful at preventing things, why am I investing in something that hasn't happened? And as years go by, you have uh, whole generations of people that have never seen some of these things. And so saying, no, no, it's important that we continue to do these things so that we don't have, and you show them old, terrible pictures and they just say, hmm, you know, that's very interesting, but I don't see that happening. So preparedness is part of public health. Um, You know, we try to prepare for things like this, um, but it's hard. It's challenging to keep that uh, investment. As I said, keep the attention, keep, keep uh, keep the interest. And um, it's also hard to fathom something like a pandemic. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I think even those who have lived through it, uh, to your point about what's an above average driver, we've all had different experiences with it. And I think we, we don't have a collective sense of what a pandemic actually is. Yeah. So it's hard. Keep going. No, I was just saying, it's just hard. It's hard to explain these things. It's hard to get people to invest in them. And it's hard to contemplate what it means to be fully prepared for something. And yeah, we can talk a lot about what 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 might that mean and, and to, to make the point, but I'll let you continue. Yeah, it would seem to me, I don't know if you're familiar with Pascal's wager, right? So he, Blaise Pascal, mathematician, and he was asked, you know, why, why Blaise, you being logical and uh, sort of um, a deep thinker, why why is it that you believe in God? And he said, well, the consequences of not believing in God are too tremendous in case I'm wrong, right? So there's a bit of a Pascal's wager, it seems, to this issue, right? The reason we should invest in public health is just in case we screw up and just in case the consequences are really bad. And that's that's tough. Like not many people make Pascal's side of that bet. Um, Most people are a little bit different. So given that, do you agree those who don't learn the lessons of the past are doomed to repeat them? <laughs> uh, I agree. I also agree. Uh, and I don't know who said it. The, the one thing we learned from history is we don't learn anything from, it, from history. <laughs> uh, right. I mean, that's, that's part of the problem. And um, I don't know if, if you have children, but you know, we all know those of us who've gone through childbirth, um, somehow your brain uh, helps you forget the worst parts of it because otherwise you wouldn't ever do it again. So in some ways, that's how we protect ourselves from trauma and from, you know, these terrible experiences is we have ways to kind of move move beyond that. But that means when you say, hey, this could happen again and we want to do something about it, we've already moved on, right? So that's just, I think, part of how we how we operate as people. It's how we're allowed to, to continue to survive. So, so- since you agreed with that statement, what are the lessons? What what do we take away? And I know it's early days. We're still kind of in the middle of the end of hopefully knock on my desk here, knock on metal in my case, uh, knock on metal. We're at the end of the pandemic. What have we learned? Well, I, I'm a big picture thinker. So I think we've learned that we don't do an adequate job of teaching science and how to understand science. Um, I think we've learned that 
very challenging to communicate in a situation where the situation keeps changing and where there are, and this was a first for us, um, we weren't used to all the media channels. Now, I don't just mean, and I'm still amazed that I can turn on my TV and have hundreds of channels. I'm talking about all the media channels that people have access to. And getting a clear message, a consistent message out when things are changing was very, very hard. And we're going to have to do a lot of work um, to understand how people receive messages and information, how they process them, how they make decisions based on them, because that was a, a terrible uh, uh, I don't even know the word I want. That, that that was so poorly done, and so I think that's something we're, we're going to have to have to address. And and I think it's always true in public health because we're also science based, we're evidence based, we're research based, and you know people again because we don't educate well about science, um, we're always pursuing truth. There, there's there's not a whole lot of truth. There's not a whole lot of facts, even though people think there are. We're always pursuing truth. So. I may do a study today that tells me one thing, um, but I'm not satisfied. I'm going to keep researching that and maybe I'll learn something different the next time. So when, when things are always changing, people develop sort of change fatigue or they, they stop trusting you because in their minds, you keep changing. Your mind. So and those are just challenges we're going to have to figure out how to, how to address. So interesting that you said pursuit of the truth. Obviously, most people, and this is perhaps the confusion, right? That simple pursuit of truth will ignore of. There are two words there. I would say the public's emphasis is on truth, uh, capital T, absolute truth. It's been established. Your emphasis is on pursuit of. Um, to me, that is part of what has to happen. Like, not that I'm the expert here, but definitely educating people about scientific method and why and how it's an iterative process and why that's a good thing is definitely lapsed. Like people seem ignorant of that. Is there anything else that you've learned or you think as a public health uh, collective that we have learned from the pandemic? Well, I, I think one, one positive experience that I uh, enjoyed through this, if that's a word I can use, is having relationships across different elements of our very complex systems was very important, at least for the way we managed the pandemic in this region of the country. Um, we didn't have to go out and, and introduce ourselves to each other. We didn't have to say, hi, I'm from the university. Hi, I'm from the health department. Hi, I'm from the uh, emergency division. Hi, I'm from the hospital. Hi, I'm from the media. We already worked together um, because if you, if you believe that public health is a system and that many different elements of our society contribute to it, even though they might not wake up in the morning and think that they they are they are contributing. Having those relationships is very very important because when something like this happens, you really for all the reasons I just said before, you really want to be working in as synchronous and harmonious a way as possible because there's enough confusion out there. If we are not being clear, you know, if I'm saying one thing and and the hospital is saying something else, and the emergency division is saying a third thing, that just continues to foment the, the anxiety that the public feels, like people don't know what's happening. Um, so I think we learned that, you know, having those relationships in place, for, and I've talked to colleagues of mine across the country, where that wasn't the case, it was even more, more challenging. Uh, but where that was the case, as it was here, not that we weren't full of Lots of confusion in this area, but we seem to have a little more um, 
traction with the public and, and a, a little more continuity of our, of our approach. So let me ask you a question, and, and I'm going to give you a little bit of context. So I've watched a very fascinating episode of Nova that was rebroadcast by the PBS affiliate up in Tampa probably two years ago. And what they were re-airing was something that I think aired originally in like 1999, something like that. It was about the 1918 uh, flu pandemic. And literally, it was identical in terms of the problems, uh, mask mandate, revolt, uh, politicians disagreeing, scientists disagreeing, absolute confusion. How do we leave a time capsule to that next group of public health officials of don't forget, don't lose the thread. Like literally it was identical. And they, they this documentary was created 20 plus years ago and it was reviewing something that happened at that moment, 80 years previously. And I mean, it was so funny. I mean, funny and you know tragic simultaneously. How do we leave a time capsule for people so that when they're in the middle of the pandemic, they get it. And that's, I know it's a long-winded question. Corollary, how do we change people's behaviors? It's not just the public health officials how do we change the public's behavior around these things? Any thoughts? So, you know, you started with, you know, if we don't study history, we do it, we do it, we don't seem to learn much from it. Um, certainly at the University of South Florida, California, we have taught the influenza pandemic to our students for years. Because it's a great case study of all the things that, that you've just said. I, I, I want to I say something so I don't forget it, and then I'll come back to your question. All of my colleagues believe that it's not going to be 100 years before the next one. So the time capsule um, is not going to be buried in the ground. It's going to be sitting here on my shelf because the next one's going to come pretty quickly is what we expect. Um, so that's sort of a cautionary note. And, and hopefully we can, again, do some of the work that we know we need to do to learn from what went wrong, both in 1918 and then now. Um, I think the, and I probably should have said this before, I, I used to say often, hey, you know, we're learning about this thing in real time. Um, COVID-19 is new. You know, we know coronaviruses. We don't know this one. So we don't necessarily know how it's going to behave. So we're learning about it in real time. But we were also learning about our ability to respond in appropriate ways in real time. So to your question about how do we get people to change their behavior? Wow. Um, Again, we, we don't do a very good job helping people understand what contributes to their health. We don't do a good job helping people understand that it's not just what you do yourself to protect your health, but everything around you contributes to your health or takes away from, from that. Um, we really saw, a, I think, a lack of this appreciation that we're stronger together, that this really demanded a collective response. And what we got instead, and there were some people that understood that, but a lot more people that didn't want to be told what to do. So somehow we have to inspire that community spirit without it feeling like these things are being imposed from somebody that people don't like or don't respect or, or don't trust. And, and that gets back to how do we effectively communicate? How do we work together? Um, and probably, I, I guess one other thing maybe we learned was maybe we needed to give ourselves a little more breathing room. And it's hard because, again, the public wants to know right now what's going on. What, why aren't you doing something about it? But maybe giving ourselves a little more breathing room to say, hey, we're we're working on this. We're, we want to hear from you. <laughs> we're going to listen. 
we're going to observe and and then maybe we're going to make some collective decisions and then communicate in a single voice. I don't know. I mean, I, the, I think these are things we're going to have to examine and study and try to learn from as we go forward. But yeah, getting people who all come at this from very different perspectives and experiences and with not a common understanding, as we said before, not a common understanding of science, of how viruses work, how infectious diseases are spread. Um, you know, there's just a lot of a lot of collective conversations. I, I, I don't I don't even want to say education, though that's certainly part of it. But we need to have more conversations about what it means to be an individual in a society where we are surrounded by threats to our health. Um, you know, COVID nineteen is top of mind right now. But I like to remind people, other than smallpox, every other disease you've ever heard of. And every disease you've never heard of are out there. Measles, mumps, uh, rubella, pertussis, polio, they're all still on the planet. And the only reason we don't see them anymore is because we vaccinate people, which creates this collective immunity, and we keep them at bay. But if we if there's a breach in that fortress, that you know, armor we have plated ourselves with. They're ready. They're here. So, you know, helping people understand that people have forgotten that. I was talking to a good friend of mine, well-educated professional, and she said, that's not true. All those diseases are gone. I said, no, they're not. No, they're not. So, you know, one of, one of the criticisms of public health is we're the, we're the doom and the, and the don't profession. You know, we're just always talking about all these threats and these potential harms and, and you shouldn't do all these different things. And that, that, that's, that's a fair statement. So we've got to do a better job reframing all these things in the positive. How do we thrive as a species on a planet with which we are deeply interconnected? Yeah. So second to last question, and thank you, thank you for that. Um, is it your impression, Donna, that that work that you just described, better job, right? Better job, dot, dot, dot. You said lots of stuff preambled with, better job, that some of that work is underway. Yes. I mean, there's certainly work underway to, to um, dissect what happened. Uh, um, you know, I hate to use the word postmortem, but it's sort of that, you know, you need to go back and figure out what happened. Why did it happen? What worked well? What didn't work well? Um, all, all of that is absolutely happening. There's a, a lot of, uh, you know, deep learning going on and st- and research um, going on, people are posing hypotheses that they're then going to test so that we try to understand what what happened. And then, yeah, figure out what should we be doing now that's not what we were doing before, because what we were doing before didn't work. Your, your, your initial question, why weren't we prepared? Because we failed to make the case. So how do we how do we make that case? And how do we prudently prepare? Because I think there's a for for some of us, you want to go, you know, well, just in case, as you say, just in case, let's have everything ready. Let's let's build isolation buildings and just have them, you know, there available. And well, that's ridiculous. You're not going to do it. Let's stockpile personal protective equipment. That's ridiculous. We're not going to do that. Um, but what can we do? How, how do we how do we prudently prepare? And I think part of it is, as I said, helping the public understand and appreciate 
um, what opportunities they have to be healthy, but what opportunities they have to to uh, lose that health. So I hate to keep using the word threats, but there are threats, and we need to face them and understand them, and then prepare. Yeah, what, one of my areas of expertise is the neuroscience of decision making, and I, I consult on that. And they, there's a paper and limited audience, hard to extrapolate the results, but it has a fascinating um, insight, and that is. In this paper research, how many times does it take doing something new for it to become a habit? And the N, like the average, the mean on that was like 60 times. Like, so trying to lose weight, trying to, you know, become a weightlifter, swimmer, whatever, 60 times. But the range on that is gigantic. Like the standard deviation of that was huge. I mean, the, the point is, is that some people never learn new habits. And it's the some people who never learn new habits that we have to do a better job managing. Because most people did wear masks. Most people did do the right thing. And still we had the result because of that. And that's a tough problem. Anyway, last question, just because we're running out of time. Uh, what question did I not ask you that you wish I had? And what's your answer to that question? <laughs> Uh, wow. So let me think. I talked about communication, which is the problem. I talked about preparedness. I talked about investment. Um, you know, I, I, I think there's, um, what questions you've asked me. I, I guess maybe the question is, you know, so we're, as you say, sort of coming out of COVID. We're not post COVID yet, but, um, I, you know, maybe the question is how do we help people appreciate, um, and I hope they do now how precious their health is. And how do we help people um, do the things that would allow them to enjoy that that positive state of health, so that they can do the things that they that they that they wish to do? So we've been talking about prevention of disease and preparing for the next pandemic or the next disaster, but there's a lot of things people can do just to feel better and be more uh, able to live their lives. And that's simple things like you know, how you, the food you eat and how well you sleep and how well you manage stress and how connected you are to other people. You know, all, all these things help us feel better, have greater well-being, have greater health. Because I think the other thing we learned from COVID, and we know this from the data, people who were healthier going in were more likely to survive coming out. And, you know, people would say, oh, people with underlying health conditions are at, are at the highest risk. Yes, they're at the highest risk for everything. So how do we help people uh, be as healthy as they can be? And that's back to how do we come together as societies? Because it's one thing to say, eat healthier food. But if there's, if there's no outlet near you, you know, if you live in a place where there is no healthy food to buy, you know, then that, that's a challenge. Or no those are decisions, right, that you can afford. And so, again, those are decisions we have to make as a society to create healthier spaces, to create access to the things that, that improve our health and make decisions to invest in those things that support each of us, and then ultimately all of us being healthier. So Donna, thank you so much for your intelligence and even more your wisdom on this issue. Really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you, Jason. It was a pleasure. Yeah. So thanks very much for you joining us as well. If you'd like this podcast recording, as well as any of our others, go to sarasotainstitute.global. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please go back to where you downloaded this podcast to find another one that might be of interest to you. Thank you.